everyone, um, or for the first time, if uh, you're here for the first time. Um, this class is the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur um, with Rabbi David Silber. And uh, I'm just going to go over a few notes before we get started. So um, I am going to be inviting you to uh, become a panelist. Um, this just means that we'll get to see your lovely faces and um, you'll be able to unmute yourself uh, when Rabbi Silber uh, pauses for questions. Um, of course, uh, if you know, during the uh, uh, kind of lecture part of this year, if uh, you have any questions that come up, you can type them into the chat and then we'll get to them when we pause. Uh, this is the same if you're joining us on Facebook Live. Uh, you can comment there and I will be checking uh, to see if there are any questions there. So um, also if, uh, you know, for some reason you miss the invitation to become a panelist, you can just, uh, you know, send me a private message uh, in the chat here and I will uh, fix that. I'll send you another invitation. So uh, moving on to the actual class, uh, this will focus on a careful examination of the core elements of the Rosh Hashanah service. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at um, enthronement and petition. If you have your own moxer available, um, it would be great if you could reference the text there and you know take any notes if you'd like. Um, otherwise, I will do my best to keep the relevant screen uh, text on sc screen uh, in Safari. So uh, Rabbi David Silber, of course, is the Dean of Drisha Institute for Jewish Education in New York and in Israel. Uh, Rabbi Silber received ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elhanan um, Theological Seminary at YU. He is a recipient of the Covenant Award for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education um, and is the author of a Passover Haggadah, Go Forth and Learn, um, from the Jewish Publication Society. Uh, for such time as this, biblical reflections in the Book of Esther, um, and Malchut Adam, Yunim uh, B'Sefer Shmuel, um, published by Magid uh, in 2021. Um, he is also a nationally acclaimed lecturer on the Bible. Uh, Rabbi Silber is married to Dr. Dvorah Steinmetz. They have eight children and live in New York City. Um, and with that, I will pass it over to um, Rabbi Silber and I will welcome you all as panelists. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, okay, let's uh, begin. Um, Topic with today is the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. Um, we think of Rosh Hashanah, or many people think of Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur is essentially, and they are obviously deeply related, Yomim no Re'im, we call them, days of war. Uh, we think of them sort of in one package as being very similar to each other, and there are certainly many similarities between the service of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but actually they're quite different. And uh, let me just begin by, again, the idea will be to focus on, to get to the core ideas, the core, uh, the core prayers of Rosh Hashanah, as reflected in the Machzor, in our tradition. And first of all, let me point out that what's very interesting about Rosh Hashanah, before we get to what is there, is what is not there. One would have expected, without question, 
there will be something in the Rosh Hashanah service in the core text of Rosh Hashanah about requests for forgiveness um, as a central theme. Uh, one would expect confessions as we have on Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippur service, the two critical elements of the Yom Kippur service are what is commonly called slichot, uh, request for forgiveness, focusing on the so-called Yud Gibel Midot, Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun, that is central to Yom Kippur. And the other thing in Yom Kippur that's central, obviously, is the, are the various confessions. There are confessions in every service, a short confession, a long confession. One might have expected, since Rosh Hashanah is called the first day of the 10 days of repentance, and in fact, the Suichot service, that the practice of saying Suichot, which for the Ashkenazi community begins on the Saturday night prior to Rosh Hashanah, or if it's immediately before Rosh Hashanah, the previous Mosei Shabbat. And we start then, and the longest, uh, the Ashkenazic rite, the longest Suichot are Erev Rosh Hashanah. The day after Rosh Hashanah is a fast day. Those are the second longest Suichot. So one would have expected to encounter many slichot on Rosh Hashanah itself. If, if the day before Rosh Hashanah and after Rosh Hashanah, we have so many slichot, certainly on Rosh Hashanah itself. So on Rosh Hashanah itself, we have no slichot at all, zero. There's no slichot on Rosh Hashanah and there are no confessions on Rosh Hashanah either. Which leads us uh, clearly to uh, the understanding that at its core, Rosh Hashanah is not about repentance. It's not about, in that sense, it's not about requesting for, for forgiveness, because in the cortex of Rosh Hashanah, there are no real requests for forgiveness. And it's certainly not central. Yom Kippur is central. In Rosh Hashanah is something very different. So we begin by looking in what actually is the core prayer of Rosh Hashanah. And the answer here is twofold. One clear central theme of Rosh Hashanah, call it a prayer or not, is the sounding of the shofar. The shofar clearly is at the center of Rosh Hashanah. That's one thing. There are no words. But then we have also texts. And the blessing that we recite in our silent Amida and repetition of the Amida. The central blessing, because in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah has several interesting variations on normal prayer. Let me begin by saying that the master of Rosh Hashanah is fundamentally, and this is true of all our prayer services, is rooted in the core prayer service of every day and every holy day, Shabbat, Yom Tov, which is that during the week, the core pieces of prayer are the Shema, and its attendant blessings, and the silent Shmona Esrei, known as the Amida, which during the week has 19 blessings. But on the holy days, the days that have Kedusha Tayom, that's an important term, Kedusha Tayom, the Amida has seven blessings, three in the beginning, three at the end, those never vary. And there's one blessing in the middle on Shabbat, it's blessing ends, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mikadesh Shabbat. On Yom Tov, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mikadesh Yisrael v'Hazmanim. On Yom Kippur, Mikadesh Yisrael v'Yom HaKippurim. And in Rosh Hashanah, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mikadesh Yisrael v'Yom HaZikaron. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron in the liturgy. And that's the middle blessing in the Amidah. 
and there are seven blessings. There are always seven blessings on all the holy days, except one exception, only one exception, which is Rosh Hashanah in Musaf. Because in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, there are nine blessings. We'll get to this later. But fundamentally, it's the same setup, basically. There's the introduction of three blessings, there's the conclusion of three blessings, and there's something in the middle. Typically, it's seven blessings on the holy days. Kedusha Tayom. That's what the blessing is called, the blessing of Kedusha Tayom, the sanctity of the day. During the week, there's what's called Shimon Hezri. <clears throat> the 18 blessings, which we actually have 19. But that's the structure. The structure isn't that different. On the other hand, there are certain elements of the Rosh Hashanah service that, in fact, are different. And the fact that it's fundamentally rooted in a common structure only makes the differences more striking. So the core blessing that we say <coughs> on the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, there are four spilot on Rosh Hashanah. There's the evening prayer, there's the morning shacharit, there's the musaf, and there's the mincha. So Rosh Hashanah has four prayers, the same as Shabbat. The additional, there's three prayers every day, on the holy days, on days which have holiness and on which a special sacrifice was brought in the temple called the Korban Musaf, the additional sacrifice. On those days, we have an additional prayer. So in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, uh, there are nine blessings, but all the other prayers have seven blessings. And the blessing, the paragraph, which introduces the final blessing of the middle section, which is the core blessing of Rosh Hashanah. We'll come back to this later on. Oh God, right? God of our ancestors, reign over the whole world in your glory. That's how the paragraph begins. And it ends, it ends with Melch um, HaKoharetz, um, Blessed you are God, King of the whole world, the whole universe, who sanctifies Israel in the Day of Remembrance, which is Rosh Hashanah. So the theme, obviously, and it's recited every single service, is you call Malchut, God's kingship. So the Day of Rosh Hashanah, among other things, is a day of proclaiming God's kingship. That's what emerges from the from the Masa. If there is tshuva there in any sense, repentance or whatever, that's not at the center. The central blessing is uh, the blessing about God's kingship, God is king. And even in the Musaf service, where there are three blessings, the three blessings have names, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, the blessings of kingship, blessing of remembrance, and the blessing of Shofar, each is a blessing followed by the blowing of the shofar. But there it's actually very interesting that we, so we have nine blessings in the Musaf. But in reflecting upon this, of course, we should really have 10 blessings, not nine. What's missing is the blessing we have every, every day, which is holy, there's a blessing about the day. Kadesh HaShabbat, Kadesh Yisrael Vahazmanim. So what happened to that blessing on Rosh Hashanah? It should be 10. It should be Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, plus the blessing about the day. And of course, when you look at the Machsa, what you see is that the blessing of the day has been combined with one of those three blessings. 
actually in the Talmud is a dispute about which blessing to, 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 uh, to connect it to or to merge it with. But at the end of the day, our practice has been, the decision was made to, ble to blend the blessing of the sanctity of the day with the blessing of God's kingship. King of the whole world, who sanctified Israel in this holy day of Rosh Hashanah. So the fact that the blessing of the day, the, sanct the nature of the day, the sanctity of the day, has been merged with the blessing of Malchiot in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah can mean only one thing, that those who have set up the Machsa for us want us to understand that what Rosh Hashanah is about is a coronation, is a proclamation of God's kingship. That's how you start Rosh Hashanah. That's what it's about. Of course, it raises a whole host of questions. <laughs> the chief one being, what does it actually mean? That's a day to proclaim God's kingship. How can that, how does that speak to us? What, what does that mean for us? That's a very good question. I'm sure we'll have to deal with that. But the first uh, point is just to see what's in this machsa. And the truth of the matter is that the machsa of Rosh Hashanah and especially Yom Kippur, if you enter into a synagogue and not really have an understanding of the structure of the prayer, I can't fathom how you would actually ever really get a good understanding of what's going on on, on, on Yom Kippur. It's so unbelievably complicated. There's all kinds of things, additions, there are all kinds of things we never say. Uh, it's a very, very long service. So unless you have a clear sense about what's at the center of it, it's very easy to get lost. Um, and Rosh Hashanah, what's at the center is simple. It is a proclamation of God's kingship together with, that's the text. And then there's the shofar. So the, let's talk about Malchiot for a moment. So basically, I mean, what it comes down to is that the question is, was, what does it mean to say that God is king? What is this king doing? And that's where it gets very interesting. Because um, the king does two different things on Rosh Hashanah. The primary thing the king does on Rosh Hashanah as reflected in our prayers is the king is a judge. Actually, in the book of Shmuel, when the people requested a king, you probably remember that in chapter eight of Shmuel, the people went to Samuel the prophet and said to Samuel, we want a king. And they said for two reasons, to fight our wars and to act as a judge, to be a judge. So the God on Rosh Hashanah is, is a God of judgment. The day of Rosh Hashanah is called Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. And that's reflected in the service. Maybe we'll get to that next week. Where do you see judgment in the service? That's a very important point. It's what we call zichronot, remembrances. God remembers means God will be accountable. And then we have the shofar. If we have time, we'll deal with that as well next week. What does the shofar mean in the, in the text of the service? Shofar has many meanings, but in the text of the service, what does it mean? So we're here to wrestle with the core ideas of Rosh Hashanah as reflected in the Siddur, in the Mahsa. That's, that's the idea of this, and to help us prepare for Rosh Hashanah, because it's very easy to uh, get off track uh, for many different reasons. Um, anyway, okay, someone have a question there or a comment at this point? Okay, let's, let, us be, let us now begin with, let's give some facts and then we'll deal with the Mahsa. 
So we have what's called let's say, These are statements. God is king, God is a judge. God is a revealed God, revelation. Those are the three themes of the Rosh Hashanah Musa, the highlights of the service. That is what the service is actually about at its core. The other stuff, the poems we say, the songs we sing, which are very beautiful and powerful, they're not at the heart of Rosh Hashanah. The Stanitokif is a very, very powerful piyut that for the Ashkenazim is very central. The Svaradim don't even say it. So obviously it's not integral to the service in any classical sense. It's a powerful prayer, powerful poem. So our job is to figure out what is at the center of the service from a traditional classical standpoint. So the, it's interesting that when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, and we're always thinking about what is unique about Rosh Hashanah. So what's very interesting is that the Gemara itself gives very specific instructions about Rosh Hashanah service, leaving the shofar out for now. It's in the whole other story, but the text. So the Gemara says there are three blessings, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. And um, each one is a blessing. And in each of these sections, says the Gemara, you are to recite biblical verses. It consists of the recitation of biblical verses. And now the question the Talmud debates at the end of Tractate Rosh Hashanah is how many verses should be recited? So there's a big dispute. Rabbi Akiva holds a minimum of 10 biblical verses in each section. And that is our practice. That's the traditional practice, 10 verses. His uh, adversary in this is Yochanan Ben-Nuri. And Yochanan Ben-Nuri says, no, that's not necessary. Three verses is enough. Three verses from the Bible. That's one fight. They agree on something else. They agree that these verses should be from different parts of the, of the Bible. We divide the Bible into three sections, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. So Rabbi Akiva says, for example, three verses from the Torah, three verses from the prophetic writings, three verses from the Ketuvim, from the sacred writings, and then a 10th verse from the Torah. That's Rabbi Akiva's position. And Yochanan Ben-Nuri says, no, you don't need 10 verses. Three verses, it's always required, one, one, and one. One from the Torah, one from the prophetic writings, and one from the um, sacred writings, the Ketuvim. That's one dispute. Then there's another dispute. Well, there's more disputes, but the, the, for our purposes, there's another relevant dispute. And that is, where do you say these malchiyot? In which blessing do you say them? So Rabbi Akiva's position that we follow is that the blessing of Malchiot is combined, as I said earlier, with the blessing of the day, Kedushat and ends up in Musaf, because we only say this in Musaf. In Musaf, it's blessing number four, blessing number five, and blessing number six. There are always three blessings in the beginning, which are pretty much the same always. The three at the end are always the same. The middle is different. So the middle is Malchiot combined with the day, then Zichronot, and then Shofarot. That's the position of Rabbi Akiva, and that's what we, that's what we do, basically. Yochanan Ben-Nuri said something else. Yochanan Ben-Nuri said, no, no. You don't say Malchiot in, in the fourth blessing. You say Malchiot in the third blessing. 
Now, what is the third blessing of the uh, of the Amida? The third blessing of the Amida, in its short form, without the additions, is Atah Kadosh v'Shimcha Kadosh u'Kadoshim b'Chol Yom Yerul Chaselo Oruch Ato Hashem Ba'El Hakadosh. And on Rosh Hashanah, we change Ba'El Hakadosh to Amelech Hakadosh. That's the third blessing. The blessing has a name in the Talmud and in the literature. It's the blessing of Kedushat Hashem, the sanctity of God's name, the third blessing of the Amida. The fourth blessing on the holy days and the fourth blessing in Rosh Hashanah is the sanctity of the day. So Rabbi Akiva says you say Malchiot together with the sanctity of the day, Kedushat Hayom. And Yochanan Ben-Nuri says, no, no, you combine it with the sanctity of the name. Now let's just think about Yochanan Ben-Nuri's position because the third, it actually makes a lot of sense because the third blessing on Rosh Hashanah is the blessing Baruch HaTashem HaMelech HaKadosh, the, 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 the Holy King. Blessed are you, O God, Melech HaKadosh, says Yochanan Ben-Nuri, okay, you're describing God as the Holy King, that's a good place to say my three verses of Malchiot. And Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva said no. Melech HaKadosh by itself, but Malchiot's got to be in the center of the Amida in the blessing about the nature of the day. So that's the fight of Yochanan Ben-Nuri and Rabbi Akiva. We'll spend some time on this dispute. It's a very important dispute. Let me just reiterate a simple point. That in order to understand the Rosh Hashanah service properly, you got to begin with an understanding, some understanding of the fundamental structure of every single Amida. Because Rosh Hashanah simply is a variation on a theme. They're all, they're all the same. They are fundamentally the same structures. Yom Kippur, Muslim of Yom Kippur, which can take three and a half hours to say, has fundamentally the same structure. There's one, one middle blessing of Yom Kippur. In it gets added other things. The avod is there, the srikot are there, the vidui is there, the regular musaf, the sacrifices, it's all there. But it's not that different in the overall structure. In fact, Rosh Hashanah's structure, nine blessings, is the real exception to the rule. Okay, now let me make one other comment here, which is very interesting. I think so. I'm not the first to discover this, but um, Rosh Hashanah is interesting in a different way and very strange because the, there are four prayers on Rosh Hashanah. There's the evening prayer, there's the morning prayer, there's the Musa prayer, there's Mincha. In three of those four prayers, there's a total of seven blessings, like every, every festival, seven blessings, three, one, and three. It's only in the Musa that there's nine. Only Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofrot, in our practice, is only in Musa. And what's interesting is, let me just short digression, but relevant, all relevant. You have to remember something about the prayer service. Rosh Hashanah's service is much longer, Yom Kippur is much longer than any other service. You have to remember that when these prayers were written, and this is a very important point, there were no sidurim. It was, there were no sedurim, there was nothing written down. In fact, it would appear from the Talmud that the Talmud strongly discouraged the writing of sedurim. The prayers were called like Torah Ped, part of the oral tradition, you don't write it down. The first siddur we know of is in the eighth century. These prayers were put together way hundreds of years before that. 
there are no Sidurim. So basically, who knows? You have to know all this by heart. Most people don't know this by heart. There's a lot of words. So the Chazan, we know that, for example, we repeat the Amidah, and the Talmud says that one of the purposes of repeating the Amidah, the Chazan says it first silently, so the Chazan can go over it before the Chazan says it publicly. And the Chazan would say it for those who could not say it themselves, the Chazan would say the, uh, the, uh, the Amidah. Now on Rosh Hashanah, the claim that I saw recently, Goldschmidt has a critical master of Rosh Hashanah, he's excellent. And he makes the claim, I said this myself years ago actually, for a different reason, I'll get to, that actually Rosh Hashanah prayer is seven, is seven, is seven blessings, not nine. In Musaf it's nine, but only the Chazan said it. The people said seven. All the prayers, like every holiday, they said seven. They couldn't say nine, they didn't know the nine. Only the Chazan would say it. And the evidence that this is correct is the following. There's another interesting feature to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur service, which is pretty much unique to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in terms of our practice. And the Chazan on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is asking permission to pray. The Chazan is called the Rishus. And the Chazan asks permission to pray, for example, in Shachrit, when there's a repetition of the Amidah. And the Rishut has a particular tune to it. This is another whole discussion about the music, the chanting, the tunes of the davening. I'm actually working on a big project right now about music and liturgy, which is, we're working on it right now, which should be extremely interesting. And it's gonna be a big project, not just in the next few weeks, but throughout the year. So there's a particular nusach, there's a particular chance. So that for example, in the beginning of Shacharit, it starts with the words misod chachamim unavonim. That's an introduction to the rishut. The chazan wants permission to pray, and the chazan asks permission. He says, "On the first day of Rosh Yoreiti b'vtzoti siach lahashchil." As it has a nusach to it, Yoreiti b'vtzoti siach lahashchil. That's how it starts. That's sound familiar? That's the, that's the Nusach of the Rishos. And in Musaf, it's the same thing. The Chazan has permission in Musaf as well. It's the same music. It's the same chant. The Chazan has permission to pray in Musaf, and the Chazan has permission to pray in Shachrit. But there's a very strange thing about the Chazan's request to pray in Musaf. The Chazan is asking permission to pray, not in the first blessing. In Shachrit, the Chazan asks in the first blessing. Chazan is starting out, so the Chazan asks permission before the prayer. But in Musaf, in Musaf, the Ochio Rakeo, beautiful prayer, the Rishut, is in the middle, it's after the Kedusha, it's just before Malchiyot. And Yom Kippur, maybe the Chazan's been dominating for two hours, all the piyutim, the Sanatoki, if you name it. And now he has permission to pray. You've been praying for an hour and a half for us already. So that is evidence, actually, that that part of the davening was said only by the Chazan. The reason the Chazan is asking permission then is because no one else has heard it. This is the beginning of the service in which the Chazan is, is davening for the people, because the people didn't say three blessings. The people only said one blessing. 
it's the Chazin who says the three blessings. So prior to the Malchiyot, Zechorot and Shofrot, the Chazin asked permission to pray. So this goes very well with Goldschmidt's uh, insight that simply people didn't know the words. They know Sidurim, how would they know it? Even the Chazin had to prepare it very carefully. It's a lot of words. In any event, so that's the, that's the permission to pray. So Malchiyot, Zichronot and Shofrot, that's the heart and soul of Rosh Hashanah davening. It's in Musaf, and only the Chazan uh, said it. And by the way, if that is true, and I'm pretty sure it is true, then there's something else very interesting about, uh, another interesting side point. We know that on Rosh Hashanah, we blow the shofar. Maybe we'll deal in the next week, if we have time, with the shofar blowing. When do we blow the shofar? So let me just get digressed for a minute about when we blow the shofar, and then we'll get back to Malchiot, and Yochanan Ben-Nuri and Rabbi Akiva. Um, so first of all, we all know that the shofar is typically blown after the Torah is read on Rosh Hashanah, before Musaf. Before Musaf. Now it's very clear that when you study tractate Rosh Hashanah, when you study the Mishnah, it is obvious from the Mishnah that the shofar was blown inside the Amida and only inside the Amida. Because the Mishnah actually, when it talks about blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, it talks about blowing the shofar on Rosh Hashanah with its blessings. And the blessings it's talking about in the Mishnah is not the blessing that we make after we read the Torah, shofar. the Mishnah doesn't know from such a blessing. When the Mishnah says, for example, what do you do if you're in a place, maybe it's the Gemara on the Mishnah, there in Rosh Hashanah, what do you do if there are two synagogues? In one of the synagogues, they sound the shofar, but they don't, they don't say Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. In the other synagogue, they say Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, but they don't blow the shofar. Where do you go? Do you go to the place where they have the blessings, or do you go to the place where they blow the shofar? The blessings, for the Mishnah and for the Gemara on the shofar, on Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. So there are two practices about whether or not, where do you blow the shofar in the Amidah? That is to say, there's one practice that you blow the shofar when the Chazan repeats the, uh, the Amidah, blows the shofar. There is another practice, which in many places they do, just to blow the shofar twice, to blow the shofar during the silent Amidah, People are praying silently, then they stop at a certain point after the first blessing, and someone sounds the shofar, and then the second blessing and the third blessing, and then it's also sounded in the repetition. That's a different practice, two different practices. Uh, Minya and I used to run, we sounded the shofar both in the silent Amida and the repetition. In any event, it's clear that though in the olden times, they did not sound the shofar during the silent Amida because they probably didn't say Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofar in the silent Amida. So you wouldn't blow the shofar there. They only blew the shofar in the repetition. That's clear. In any event, uh, so the blessings, the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofar are, among other things, are a blessing on the shofar. One might even say an interpretation of the shofar. Okay. So that's two, two interesting features of the Rosh Hashanah service. One is the Chazan is often asking permission to pray. By the way, there's a very common practice for many years, that even before Musaf starts, 
the Chazan asks permission to pray. Hinnini is a very beautiful prayer. Hinnini is not really essential part of the davening at all, but it was put in there. The Chazan's about to pray the Musaf service, which is the highlight service of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, no doubt. Great drama of Musaf, what it is, a drama, especially Yom Kippur, but Rosh Hashanah as well. And the Chazan is asking permission to pray, to be a Shliach Tzibur, the prayers of the Chazan should be acceptable, etc. So there we add a request to pray. They're constantly asking, asking permission to pray, which makes sense, especially if on these days, only the Chazan is saying the main part of the prayer. So there's a tremendous responsibility here to lead this community in, in the prayers that they themselves can't say. Be that as it may, one way or the other, whether that's the reason or simply the the seriousness of the day, it's a feature of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur service, the request to pray. And then the other interesting feature is that the shofar is sounded in the middle of the Amidah. So apparently they didn't see shofar something separate from, from the prayers. They're understanding the shofar is integrated into the prayer service. It's not a separate mitzvah to blow the shofar. The shofar is part of the, is part of the prayers. And the integration of the blessings of Rosh Hashanah with the shofar is central to the idea of prayer on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so now let's, um, but before I get to uh, this question of Rabbi Akiva and Yochanan ben Nuri about Malchiyot, are there any comments or questions to this point? Either in the chat or anything else, I'm happy to hear. Not, okay, you continue. Don't fine. If you have questions, feel free to speak up. Okay, now uh, let's get a quick question. Yes, uh, you answer. You partially answered it when you added the hinani. Is the hinani a later addition to the machzer or not? Or your uh, whatever. Thank you. It's certainly a later addition. There's no question about that. I don't know when it started. It's not part of. It's not part of. It's very important, especially Rosh Hashanah Kippur, to understand what is central, what is secondary, what is tertiary. Hinnity is not essential to the service at all. By the way, when I say it's not essential, Nisana Tokif isn't essential either. But Nisana Tokif is powerful. In other words, there's, there's what is classically central to the service. Good to know that. There are things that we add into the service, which for us are very very powerful prayers. I'm not suggesting otherwise. The Sanatokov is one of the central prayers of, 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 of Rosh Hashanah and, and, and Yom Kippur, without question. Uh, it's both a frightening prayer. It's a, it's a call to repentance. It's never too late. That's one of the themes. Um, you know, it's, it's staying there. And I always think, Sanatokov, I always look around the synagogue, who's not here this year? You know, who, who, who will live and who will die? It's, uh, it's very real. Um, is, it, is, it, is it part of the essential service of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur in any classical way? No, the Tzvarim don't even say it. It's not what's essential is what's in the Mishnah, is the structure, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofar. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about at its core. But there are many additional things that we add on. The beautiful poems that we add on, there's songs. So that's essential in a different way. It speaks to us in a very emotional way, in a very deep way. It, it those are, I mean, they're, and they're 
basically very beautiful prayers and tunes and songs that were written for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The truth of the matter is that the great, great composers of Jewish music, um, the great rabbis, they say Mujits, uh, among others, Mujits, most of the things they wrote, they write Nigunim, often with no words. But, but the focus of their, most of their focus is on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Tremendous focus on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Areshes Vaseinu, Chamor Ma'asecha. You have these, what they wrote, 30 Nigunim for each of these or more. Um, Karl Bach is the same way, by the way. It's fundamentally Rosh Hashanah, and even some of the Nusach of Rosh Hashanah, he, transpo- he transports to other places. His, his, his Kabbalah Shabbos has a Rosh Hashanah feel to it, actually. So why? Because those are days of prayer. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are our days of prayer. Those are central, those are days of prayer. So of course, it's taken very seriously and all these beautiful poems, compositions, etc., cetera, are, are important to us. Uh, they're capable of speaking to us in a very profound way, but they're not essential in the same sense. They're not what, how the rabbinic tradition understood the day. Okay. There may be embellishments of it, but they're not at the center of it. Uh, yes, is that Richard over there? Yes, thank you. Uh, so, um, h- how is it that we come to have the shofar blowing as a standalone service, kind of with its own bracha? It, right. I mean, it, that doesn't. There must be some other view that I'm not. Uh... No, 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 it's an excellent question, which was raised by many people hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Um, the answer that's given, by the way, I would add, not only is it not essential, it actually undercuts what is essential. Right. <laughs> it's worse than that. Yeah. It's done for a simple reason, and the commentaries are all pretty much in unison on this. It was done for people who couldn't stay in synagogue for the whole service. Mm-hmm. They were old, they were weak, they were sick, whatever it is. So in order to accommodate them, the chauffeur was sounded before, and What's interesting is that when we sound the shofar before the musaf, we make a blessing. But there's a dispute, what is the blessing? Because the, the Talmud doesn't know of such a blessing. Talmud doesn't have a blessing for shofar. The blessing of shofar is malchiyot and shofar. The blessing we make is l'shmoah kol shofar. Rabbeinu Tam had a different blessing, l'tkoah. He said l'tkoah shofar. That was Rabbeinu Tam. No small potatoes, Rabbeinu Tam. And the consensus was otherwise Mishmoa. But they're fighting about it because, in fact, there is no blessing. It's a very interesting example of where the decision was made to accommodate people who couldn't hear the shofar at all later. And in doing so, actually, undermining in a certain sense, you know, or certainly uh, detracting from what is the core idea of the shofar, which is inside the Amida, as integrated with the, the prayers. But it's clear that was done to um, it was done to uh, accommodate people who were who were ill or old or whatever and couldn't get through the whole service. Uh, that's a good question. That's that is the answer, and all pretty much in unanimity about the answer. But it is very striking. Okay, uh, let me now get back to the um, let's get back to the malchiot of let's get back to the prayer of Yochanan ben Yuri. It's a very, very beautiful prayer. And um, it's in all the services. And it's, it's found in the third blessing. So if you have it in any of, any of the services, you'll find it. Let's say in Musaf, it's the simplest in Musaf. After the silent Musaf, 
after the starts at Takadosh, Vishim Chakadosh. That's how the third blessing begins. Short blessing. Ukadoshim Bechoyom Yaru Chaseva. Normally you simply end with Kikel Melch Kadosh Kadosh Atab, Ruchat Hashem, Kewa Kadosh, Hamelch Kadosh. But here we don't end the blessing right away. We insert a poem. And the poem begins with the words Uvachain. It begins with a poem, which is a very strange way to start. Therefore. And so, so should follow, and therefore, should follow a statement made before the therefore. The problem is, what is the statement? That you are holy? Is that the statement? You are holy? And therefore, God should, you should place you in fear and dread upon all of the all of those masecha, those things you have made. That which you created. So that's a reference to the fact that God is the creator of, of, of the world. Masecha probably refers not to all creatures, but to humans. And the other word is Asher Barata. It's very interesting. When you open up the Chumash to the book of Reishi, to Genesis, and you see that in the, the two creation narratives, of course, in the first creation narrative, which ends in chapter two, verse number four, the word bara and the word asa appear many, many times. Bara appears seven times. Asa, I believe, appears 10 times. When you get to the second creation narrative, as, bara doesn't appear at all. And Asa appears one time. I don't have time now to go into this. It's very interesting. But when you look at this particular prayer, you have, first of all, that's Asa, and Asher Barata. Then you have Ma'asim, again, the word Ma'asim, again, Bara. And as you go down to this, and the rest, Shimcha Nora Komashe Barata, or you have created. So we have Asa and Bara, that's a total of seven times. And the very end of it, So what's interesting is that the language of this poem, very beautiful poem, the two key words are the word Bara and the word Asa, which is recalling that first chapter of the Torah. God has created. On the, in the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, the presumption of the Rosh Hashanah service is that the creation of the world takes place on Rosh Hashanah. The world is created on Rosh Hashanah. In the Talmud, it's a dispute. Was the world created on, on Tishrei? Was the world created in Nisan? On Rosh Hashanah, we speak of the world being created on Rosh Hashanah. After the shofar is blown, Hayom Harat Olam, birth of the world. So the point is, we are speaking of God as creator. And the God, of, uh, uh, the creator God of chapter one is creator of all, of everything, including all of humanity. There are no Jews at that point, it's humanity. So the, the focus over here, we say, God, place your dread and fear over all those that people that you have created, Barata, Sita, in order that, is, a, is, a, is in order that, in order that they fear you, fear of God is not just fear of God or 
all the created beings should bow down before you, should accept your kingship. And not only that, and they should form a bond, humanity, a single band to do your will with a perfect heart. Interesting prayer that all humanity joins together to serve God. That's the beginning of this, 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 this poem, basically. And your name is revered upon all you have created. That's the first paragraph. There's a universal theme to Rosh Hashanah. I'll come back to that line, which is very important. That's the first paragraph. Then the second paragraph speaks about Israel. And therefore, grant, grant dignity or honor to your people. Praise to those who fear you. Good hope. Those who seek you out. And give them, give them the ability to speak. They shouldn't be silent. They, in this context, they'll be free to speak up. Bring joy to your land. So this is the second paragraph of the poem. The first is about all created beings. The second is about your people, Amecha, Israel. Um, bring joy to the land. And here there's something very interesting about the second paragraph, which often is sung, actually. There are many, many, many beautiful nigunim to these words. And here there's a difference between this paragraph over here, and what we encounter later with the Malchiot in the middle of the service. This actually, these, these paragraphs, I mean, I said this years ago, just speculation. It turns out that many people have said this, that these paragraphs actually are the Malchiot of Yochanan ben Nuri. I'll get back to that. This is Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri's Malchiot were included in the third blessing where he has Malchiot. And the, the speculation is this may have been his malchiot. Now, what's interesting here is that in the second paragraph, we ask God to grant us dignity. Those that fear you should be given dignity and the ability to speech, to speak up, joy to the land. And here in this paragraph, it mentions King David. We don't have that in the Malchiot in the middle in Rosh Hashanah. There's no mention of David in the Rosh Hashanah service in the Malchiot. But here, we do mention David Avdecha, Aricha Ben Yishai Meshichach. And actually, this paragraph plays off one of the Psalms. Psalm 132. Psalm 132, you have exactly this idea that Find one Psalm 132. It starts, That's how it starts. Remember David. Remember all David's sufferings and difficulties. Remember that David swore to build your temple. David swore to build your temple. David said, I will not rest. I will not sleep until I build your temple. It's a whole other discussion. In my most recent book, Machut Adam, I talk about this, about David's, about the Psalm, how it relates to the book of Shmuel. In any event, 
And then it talks about the temple, it talks about God's house. Further down in the psalm, talks about God's house. God, David wants to build God's temple. Oh, please, God, don't, don't, don't refuse my request. Bavru David Avdecha Al Tashe Psalm 132, verse number 10. And then we have God's response to David at the end of the psalm. God says to David, Yes, I promise you eternal kingship. There may be many bumps along the way, but I promise you eternal kingship. Yes, this will be my house that you build. Zot Menuchati Adeyad in verse 14. In verse 16, Koanela Albishyesha. The priest I will clothe in, 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 uh, in, in victory, and the and righteous ones will sing. There I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one and a horn for David. So here you have in Psalm 132 exactly this point that the psalmist sees David as one who can reflect God's kingship. That is interesting that if we think about the, the text that, that this paragraph plays off, the text speaks about the king who in principle can reflect God's will, can reflect God's values, can reflect God's kingship. This idea of the king hypothetically reflecting God's kingship, when one reads the book of Shmuel, one does not get the impression that the king can necessarily typically reflect God's kingship. But the one who has exactly this prayer, we need a king to reflect your kingship. That's the Haftorah of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. That's Hannah's prayer. God, you have certain values, right? And then, uh, that's Hannah's prayer. That's the Haftorah of Rosh Hashanah that God's kingship on earth is the responsibility of, 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 of human beings and Hannah believes it's possible. So this particular Psalm, Psalm 132, is the Psalm that this second paragraph here, coming back to Uvachain, that the second paragraph is, 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 is reflecting. That you don't have in the Malchiot in the, cent, in the central Amida, the Malchiot we call Malchiot, but you do have it over here. That's the second. And the third paragraph also plays off Psalm 132. It's what the psalmist said in Psalm 132. I will call the, the priests in righteousness. And the, the chasidim, the ones loyal to God, will sing, will cry out and sing for joy. So that's also referenced over here in paragraph number three. So it starts with the world, then Israel, and then the righteous. And the evil shall shut its mouth. In contrast to what it said in the second paragraph, give the ability to speak to those who, 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 uh, who, who, who seek you out. There's seeking out God, if you truly connect to God, it gives you a certain freedom. You, you, you measure your behavior by God, not by anybody else. So you're free to speak. You're a free person. You can speak the truth without fear of consequence. So we, in the prayer of the illuminating the, the wicked ones, there we say, They'll disappear. 
wickedness is removed from the earth. Wicked kingship is removed from the earth, the rule of evil. God is the true king. And God, you will reign alone. I'll call Maasecha over all of your creatures, all of your beings, Jews, non-Jews, the world. That's the prayer. It will take place in Hartzion, as it is written, So here we have a, a verse. Remember that Malchiot, remember we said that Malchiot, the coin to Rabbi Akiva, is 10 verses. Three from the Torah, three from the prophets, three from the writings. Yochanan ben Nuri said, you only have three verses. One from the Torah, one from the prophets, one from the writings. So here we have a verse, Yimoch Hashem Yolam Ohayach Tzion, that's taken from the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 148, part of the daily service, Tzukit Dezimba. It's one of the last Psalms that we have. So we have a verse from the Psalms. The conclusion of this beautiful prayer, Kadosh HaTov you are holy and you are awe-inspiring. In a law, and there's no, no God beside you. Kakotub, as it is written. And we have another verse. God is, God is exalted through justice. And the holy God is sanctified through righteousness. Now, where is this verse from? This verse is from, the, from Yeshayahu. It's a verse from Isaiah. It's a verse from the prophets. So the previous verse was from the Psalms. And this verse is from the prophets. And this is the end of the blessing. Now here there's something very interesting. We know that in the Malchiot, we say, and maybe next week we'll deal with this. There are, we have a total of 10 verses. Three from the Torah, three from the prophets, three from the writings, 10 from the Torah. What is the order? So we speak about Tanakh, Torah and Nevi'im, Ketuvim. But in the davening of Rosh Hashanah, that's not the order. It's three from the Torah, but the next three verses are from the, uh, are from the writings, they're from the Psalms. All, all the middle verses are from Psalms, which is Ketuvim. And the last verses are from the prophets. Seven, eight, nine are from the prophets. Here you have the same order. What's missing over here? What's missing over here is the first verse from the Torah. So probably, I suggest, there was a verse from the Torah before Uvachem, because Uvachem means and therefore. We mean therefore. So there must have been a verse, which for whatever reason was taken out. What the verse was, who knows? There aren't too many verses in the Torah that speak of God's kingship. There are only three, actually. <clears throat> Maybe it was Hashem Yimloch Yolam Statement made at the, at the sea. God will reign forever, and God will reign forever in Shiratayam is connected to the building of, of building of God's temple. The temple that your hands God will build. And then Hashem God, you will you will reign forever. So that verse may have been there. For whatever reason is taken out. I don't want to get into speculation as to why. There is some good speculation as to why. So if that's the case, if there was that verse, then you have exactly three verses in the same order. Torah, writings, and prophetic writings, prophetic statements, which is exactly the order of Malchiot. And we have here Malchiot. It's a little, it's similar to, but different from the Malchiot we have in the center. It's shorter. And it does mention, it does mention King David here. 
it mentions human kingship as reflecting God's kingship. I want to come back to that theme of human kingship as reflecting God's kingship and come back to something that I uh, spoke about in the last time I, last year I taught about prayer, when I taught about prayer, and I had the following observation. I wanted just to, to embellish that a little bit. I made the following observation about the, about the Amida, Shimon and that the Amida on Rosh Hashanah in the Ashkenazic world, in any event, there was the practice to add additional poems into the Amida called Piyutim. And the Piyutim were focused on the first three blessings, mostly the third blessing. Most of the poems are in the third blessing, Atok Kadosh, just before Kedusha. There were also some Piyutim that we say in the first, some say in the first and second blessings. So we have three blessings. We always have three blessings. So the point I made is that when you look at the poems of the great Paitanim, who lived in ancient Israel, the greatest of which is Eliezer Kalir, there are others. You see something interesting, that the first three blessings that the, poet, the poets presume that the, first, the focus of the first blessing was actually Abraham. Sometimes Abraham and also Sarah, Abraham and Sarah was the first blessing. The second blessing of resurrection is Isaac, sometimes Isaac plus, plus Rebecca. And the third blessing is, is Yaakov, it's Jacob. Sometimes Jacob and his wives, Jacob and Rachel, etc. And I suggested that actually that poetic uh, embellishment or understanding is actually the pshat because the, what they're picking up on is the description of God in the beginning of the Amida. We describe God in the beginning of the Amida as Hayel Hagado Hagibar Vianova. And I pointed out that Gado is a term the Torah uses specifically for, 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 for Avraham. Gibar, that term doesn't appear in terms of Yitzchak. Atsum appears with Yitzchak. But, but, but certainly the theme of the second blessing, which is resurrection, is an Isaac theme. Isaac was resurrected. I don't mean literally, but he, he was to die and he's brought back to life. So that's the second theme. And the word Nora, which typically does not appear in the blessing during the year, that's a Jacob, that's a Jacob word. It's what Jacob said when Jacob was running away from his brother and he goes to sleep in a, in a place and he has a dream. And in his dream, he recognizes that the place that he's sleeping is the gateway to heaven. He understands the place that he's sleeping is the gateway to heaven. He wakes up. And what does Jacob say when he wakes up? In Genesis chapter 28, how awesome is this place? It is certainly the Beit Elohim, the house of God, and the gate to heaven. And Jacob takes a vow. What was Jacob's vow? If you bring me back safely, he's leaving, he's running away. If you bring me back in safety, says Jacob, bring me back in safety. Then this rock that I place here as a pillar shall become the house of God. So Jacob takes a vow to build God's house, Beit El. He names the place Beit El, God's house. Now, what did Jacob see in his dream? Remember the dream of Jacob. What did Jacob see in his dream? 
he sees a staircase to heaven from the place he's sleeping. He sees a staircase going to heaven and he sees the angels going up and down the staircase. Angels going up and down the staircase. And what is Jacob? What is Jacob's promise? What is Jacob's vow? If you bring me back safely to the land, I will make you my God. My own specifically my God. I'll do something others haven't done. I will build your house. And the house has many meanings, but one of them is the temple. And the, the, the temple that Jacob promises to build, Beitel, where's he going to build this temple? He's going to build the temple in this very place. But what is this very place? It's God's house. What do you mean it's God's house? Jacob promises to build. Jacob says, I will build God's house. Yeah, Beitel Elohim. He means that the temple that I build will be exactly opposite, opposite of the, the heavenly temple. What Jacob sees in his dream, the angels going up and down the staircase there. They're going up and down to God's house. God is above. Hashem Nitzav Allah. God is above. And these are God's ministering angels that God sends on different missions. But the central communication place is where Jacob is. So Jacob takes a vow. I'm going to build a temple, which is precisely opposite of your temple. Beitel. It's the opposite of the story of the Tower of Babel. Migdal Babel, people said, let's build a, let's build a tower and we're going to go to heaven. Babel, what does Babel mean? What is Bav in Aramaic? Bava Metziah, Bava Kama, Bava Basra, what is Bav? Bava is the gate. God's gate. So Babel is God's gate. They think they're going to go to heaven. So God scoffs at that. You're not going to heaven. You've got enough problems on earth. You're not going to heaven. So Jacob understands that. We're not going to heaven. God is in heaven. Shemaim, Shemaim, Hashem. But our, our mission is to build God's, God's temple on earth. One might say God's kingdom on earth. But as we saw in Shirat Hayam, God's temple and God's kingdom are one and the same. So here it's actually very interesting that normally in the third blessing, we don't have the word Noah. There's no word Noah. The word Noah, Gadol Gibo Noah. Noah is a Jacob word. That's what Jacob said. How awesome is the place? We don't have it every single uh, day, but we do have it on Rosh Hashanah. Because the blessing of Rosh Hashanah in the first paragraph, the Shimcha Noah Barasa. Your name, God, is, is awe inspiring for all of your creations. I would add that in Jacob's dream, he saw the angels going up and down the ladder. They weren't going to him. They were going throughout the entire world. That's what God says to Jacob. Wherever you go, I will protect you. I have dominion over every, everything, over every place. is the first paragraph. And how does this blessing end? You are holy, and, you're, and your name is holy, and awe-inspiring, the Noah. So the so the Vikhain begins with Nora and it ends with Nora. And it's interesting, it's in the blessing of, of Kedushat Hashem. What do we what what do we say inside the blessing of Kedushat Hashem when there's a minion? What do we say? We say Kedusha. What is Kedusha? What are we what are we doing when we say Kedusha? We are imitating the angels, aren't we? Right? Kadesh Maram. 
we are going to sanctify your name in this world the same way it's sanctified Bishmei Maron in the upper worlds, right? We're going to do here on earth, we're going to mirror on earth what's done above. That's the third blessing in Kedusha Tashem, Kedusha. But who's the, one who, who's the one who said that precisely, that my obligation is to do in this world what's done above? If not our patriarch Yaakov, that's exactly what Yaakov says. I'm going to build God's house on earth, not in heaven, but this is God's place. This is the gateway to heaven. So here on earth, it's what the Talmud and our tradition calls Yerushalayim Shalmata, Yerushalayim Shalmala. Jerusalem is another word for the temple. There's the heavenly temple. There's the temple above. That's God's business, the temple above. And our job is to build the temple below, God's kingdom on earth. Right. So that's, that's our mission, actually. That's how Jacob saw his mission. I'm going to build something, something holy on earth. Whatever it takes, says Jacob. Jacob has a difficult life, as he says himself. Few and difficult and bad were my years. He sets up the future. He sets up the family. He sets up the covenantal family. He sets up the temple. So this is the point is that Yochanan ben Nuri's, it probably is the Malchim of Yochanan ben Nuri. It probably is that missing first verse from the Torah. The next verse is from the, uh, the Ketuvim, the writings. And the last verse is from the prophets. Um, before I stop to take comments or questions here, I just want to make one last comment about the order of the verses. Um, and that is that it's interesting that we don't, we, we always talk about Torah and Nevi'im and, uh, and, uh, and, and Ketuvim, Tanakh. But in the service of Rosh Hashanah, it's Torah, Ketuvim, and Nevi'im. The verses from the Torah, then the Ketuvim, the prophets, then the, then the, the Psalm. Psalms, and then there is the, uh, the prophets. And I think the reason for that actually in the Malchiot is this. There is, we'll have to look next week more at these, at these, at the, at the verses that are being cited. I would just add that the Malchiot that we say on Rosh Hashanah, um, they're very beautiful. I'm talking about the language. It's actually poetic, very poetic and beautiful language. Now, I wrote a book recently uh, called Malchut Adam. It's in, it's in Hebrew. I didn't write it. My colleague writes, I, I speak, he writes. So yesterday, someone said, uh, someone said, I got you a book. Where did you learn to write that Hebrew? It's very beautiful. I said, it is beautiful. It's not me, but it's very beautiful Hebrew. And there's something about the Hebrew in the, in the Daphne. If you have a feeling for the Hebrew, it's majestic Hebrew. It's so beautiful. Really, whoever, whoever wrote it, it's ancient prayers, you know? This is simpler, but it's also very beautiful. What about the order of the verses? So the, uh, I believe it's for the following reason. The, 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 like for example, I'll give you an example. The, uh, the, uh, the Haftorah, we read the Torah on Shabbos, then we have a Haftorah. Where is the Haftorah from? Always from the prophets. There's no haftarah from the from the ketubim. None, zero. Never. All the uh, haftarot are from the Nevi'im. It's the blessing you make it, right? Asher bachar b'nevi'im torim is the blessing on the haftarah, right? Right. Habocher b'tarav Moshe Avdo uvin v'yeh ha'emet. What's that? It's always it's always why why is that? 
What, what is it about the Nevi'im? In Rosh Hashanah, it's the same thing. The Nevi'im, actually, we, many of the Haftarot, especially the ones we're reading now, Shiva de Lechemta, they're a Haftarot of consolation. They typically are Haftarot of hope. Often when the parish is very difficult, raises difficult issues, the great majority of the prophetic writings that we cite are con con consolation, hope, gives us strength, promises. That's, so Rosh Hashanah is no different. Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. And as we'll see next week, it's judgment for a judge who knows everything. This judge knows everything. It's gonna to come to a very correct decision. You can't bribe the judge. You can't sweet talk the judge. There's no way around it. And the judge knows you better than you know yourself. So you, Rosh Hashanah, you start with the judgment, which is Zichronot, and you say to yourself, you know, what, how, do we, how do we get out of this judgment? You know? So the, as you read through the verses of Rosh Hashanah, and you come to the end, for example, in Zichronot, one of the highlights are those verses from the prophet and the Rosh Hashanah service, the rest of which is Habein Yaki Ephraim, which is also the, the Haftorah of the second day of Rosh Hashanah. I remember him fondly. Even when I, even when I attack, I still remember. So that we want to always end with the with the the reason we have the Torah Ketuvim Nevi'im, I think, is we want to put the Nevi'im last. The Nevi'im are the great consolers of the Jewish people. They will also admonish us, no doubt, but they are within the prophetic writings. And we have the Shiva de Nechemta, or from Isaiah. These are words of consolation. So we want to end on that note, on a note of hope as we move uh, forward. We start a new year and end the previous year. So we want to move forward with that. So here we have, I wanted to point out that here we have inserted into our service what is seen by many as the Malchiot of Yochadon ben Nuri. And um, it's interesting, I'll make, I'll make one final comment about the Malchut of Yochad and Ben-Nuri and about Rosh Hashanah in general. When you read these, parag these paragraphs of Yochad and Ben-Nuri, of Uvechein Tein Pachtacha, they're so beautiful and powerful. But the truth of the matter is that much of what we read over here, we say pretty much every single day. When you think about the daily prayer service, now, it doesn't have the universal cast that Rosh Hashanah has. When you think about the universe, the service every single day, the blessings of the Amidah of every day, right? God, we restore the judges. Oh God, reign alone. God, be our king. Reign alone in justice and, and righteousness. Get rid of the evil ones, right? Over here. And then, what about the temple, right? Bring David's kingship back to Jerusalem. God, bring back the line of David. And through David, your redemption. We pray for your redemption every day. It's exactly what you have over here. It's God's kingship. It's David as reflecting God's kingship. It's the elimination of, of evil from the world. So that you could, it's a place of tzedek or mishpat, right? That's how this blessing ends. The last verse of the section, 
from Isaiah. God is exalted in righteousness. Tzedakah or Mishpat, the day of judgment. Here you have Yochadim Benuri's Malchiot, Tzedakah Mishpat. Tzedakah Mishpat. You don't have that in the Malchiot in the center, but here you have it. So we say it every single day, basically. True. Here it's much more of a universal cast, God of all, God of all humanity, all that God has created. But fundamentally, it's not that different. So you see on Rosh Hashanah, I'll just end with the following thought of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah morning, custom where I grew up, people come to synagogue early in the morning. And what's the first thing we say Rosh Hashanah morning? I don't know what your practice was. First thing I grew up was Adonolam. Adonolam is chanted, sometimes sung, in a very soulful and a picky up on the, on the mystery and the power of Adonolam. And we say Adonolam all the time. Some young person sings it. People, people point that Talesi way, walking out of the synagogue, walking to the Kiddush. Adonolam is an awesome prayer. It's awesome, actually. We forget that. Rosh Hashanah morning, we remind ourselves of the basics. Get back to basics. What is really central? That's how you start Rosh Hashanah morning. Adonolam. Yom Kippur is the same. Adonolam. So my point is, after Rosh Hashanah, maybe we should go back to the normal, the regular prayers and look at them differently. Oleinu uh, Lishabeach. And Rosh Hashanah is one of the highlights. You mumble it a few times a day. Right? So Rosh Hashanah is about getting back to the basics as we start a new year. Okay, I'll stop at this point. There's more. Next week, we will deal with the Malchiot in the center and the Day of Judgment on Rosh Hashanah, the Zichronot. Maybe we'll talk a bit about the shofar. Now, are there any comments or questions now? You have a few minutes. Anything in the chat, Maxine? Can't hear you. Um, no, nothing in the chat. And I'm just looking at the Facebook. I don't think there's anything there. Um, okay. Okay. I think that is it. Okay. Um, That's it. So we, um, all right. So this is just to summarize what we looked at today was fundamentally the idea of kingship in the service with a focus not on the Malchiot in the center of the service, with a focus on the Malchiot in the third blessing, the blessing of God's name, the blessing of Kedushat Hashem, the blessing of Norah. It's, and coming back to Jacob's uh, promise, Jacob's vow, Jacob's neder, to build God's kingship on earth. We talk about, and we'll talk more about what does it mean to say we, 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 make, we declare God as king? How does that speak to us? That's a very important question. We'll deal with that next week. Um, okay, so we'll continue with this next week. We have a whole bunch of other classes uh, as well. Uh, okay, I'll turn it over to you, Maxie. Okay, thank, uh, you. thank you, Rabbi Silver. And thank you to the participants. Thank you, Rabbi Silver. Welcome. Thank and, you. Uh, if you're loving the deep dive into prayer. Was um, excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. So tomorrow night at 8 p.m., uh, we're going to have the first of two sessions with Prof Professor Benjamin Summer. Um, he'll be taking us through Psalm 27, the David, and the Hebrew uh, very carefully. Um, also, uh, at 11.30 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday, Dr. Hanan Gafni will be uh, giving a class on prayer, um, specifically uh, searching at the forefathers and foremothers therein. 
And later today at 2.30, Rabbi Levi Morrow will be teaching the first of two sections uh, dealing with questions about fear in a religious context, inspired by the text that we were looking at today. And we have over a dozen classes scheduled for the Elosvan. Uh, you can learn more and register at elul.drisha.org. Um, Maxine, I just wanted to add one thing. We have actually an all-star cast with Elul. I mean, you have some terrific teachers. You should mention it to your friends, associates. We really put together a great program with Elul. And uh, some people that's very much worthwhile hearing that have a lot to say, they're very knowledgeable. So I'm very pleased that we put together. I really hope that people will take advantage of it. Yes, um, definitely. If I signed up for a class and I missed it, is there any way that I can see a recording of it? Um, they're all, they'll all be on the website. Everything's um, recorded. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you all. Thank you. Have a great day. Same to you. You too.